This episode is sponsored by our friends at Law Enforcement Labor Services in Minnesota. Law Enforcement Labor Services, also known as LELS, is Minnesota's largest public safety labor union with over 7,000 Minnesota public safety members serving in all areas of public safety, law enforcement, 911 dispatch centers, corrections, public safety administrative support personnel, and firefighters. Established in 1977, LELS serves over 260 different public safety agencies and over 450 locals across the state of Minnesota. With their administration, general counsel, three staff attorneys, and 14 business agents, LELS provides contract negotiations for better wages and benefits, grievance processing and representation, discipline representation, mediation and arbitration, assistance with representation for post-board hearings, and in-line-of-duty death benefits for survivor families. Find out more about Law Enforcement Labor Services at LELS.org. LELS.org. Hi, everyone, and welcome. I'm Sheriff Scott Rose from Minnesota, and I'm your host for today's new episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. He's In each episode of the Officer Down Memorial Podcast, we'll share the details and the stories of how these men and women heroically lost their lives in the line of duty. Our mission is to help ensure their service and sacrifice is never forgotten. Thanks for spending some time with me today to remember and honor these fallen heroes. Wasika County is located in south-central Minnesota. It's just southwest of the Minneapolis-St. Paul metro, and it was established back in 1857. The county's first established farming community was called Wasika. Wasika, in Dakota language, means to be rich, which is said to be a reference to the fertile soil in that area. The county later took on that same name and its terrain consists of low rolling hills carved by drainages and dotted with lakes. The area is devoted to agriculture whenever possible. The Winona and St. Peter Railroad line passed through the town of Winona and was completed in the latter half of the 1860s, which caused the town to bloom. By 1870, the vote was taken to relocate the county seat to that settlement. 100 years later, the population had grown to nearly 17,000 people and was home to 21 lakes and five small towns, including the county seat. This year, the blockbuster hit Star Wars began filming in Tunisia in northern Africa. Somewhere in space, this may all be happening right now. 20th Century Fox and George Lucas, the man who brought you American graffiti, now bring you an adventure unlike anything on your planet. Star Wars. Here they come. In New York City, the son of Sam pulls a gun from a paper bag, kills one, and seriously wounds another in the first of a series of attacks that terrorized the city for the next year. The man is, um, he's ill, it's something, uh, you can't be out on the street. 
I mean, he could uh, happen to anybody and you never know. He targeted young, attractive women with long brown hair, causing hundreds of women to cut their hair short and dye it blonde. The 24-year-old, who was later diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic, claimed to hear voices of demons that told him to commit murder, including from a black Labrador retriever owned by his neighbor named Sam Carr. ABC News goes to the Great American Birthday Party. The United States celebrates its bicentennial in recognition of the 200th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. From the American Broadcasting Company's Bicentennial Center in New York City, Harry Reasoner. The year was 1976. Barb Eustace, now Barb Hartzog, grew up in Wasika and remembers it as a small, safe town back in the 70s. Small, rural community, um, farming community, uh, pretty close-knit. Everybody knows everybody. You know, everybody's related. And then you could be out all the time playing. You know, but it was also the 70s. And, you know, you were always outside playing all the time. And that's what we did. The times were different. Wasika is a small rural community. Now, back then, the community was home to around 6,800 people. School colors were blue and gold, and the school mascot was the Blue Jay. Barb's sister Becky remembers all the kids in the neighborhood. Almost everybody knew everybody, but they certainly, if they didn't know, they knew connections. On our block where we lived, there were probably over 20, 25 kids. Families had a lot more kids at that time. And dad and mom would go and play baseball with us in the alley. And they were about the only parents that played with us. So my mom was an only child, really. She had two half-siblings, but they were much older than her. So she was really raised more as an only child. But my dad came from seven, and he loved kids. I would describe my dad as an Irishman in spirit. He loved to joke. He loved to play with them. And um, so I think that he just loved to have kids around, and my mom must have too. Gary Eustace, one of Barb's brothers, remembers Wasika as being a great place to grow up. Wasika was a very rural community. We had maybe 6,000 people. There was a lake on each end of the town. It was kind of your idyllic little community in that when I was young, you know, you'd get up to eat breakfast in the summer, you'd head out, find a ball game, play all day, come home for dinner, you know, and then go back out till the street lights came on. It was just a great place for kids to grow up. The city was originally planted as an established railroad stop, and it became a major shipping hub for wheat in the Midwest. It had been about 10 years since the 1967 Iowa-Minnesota tornado outbreak, which severely damaged much of the community. The city was doing well, crime was low, and the community loved their local sheriff, Sheriff Don Eustace. Donald Dean Eustace, son of Thomas Eustace and Ethel Haley, was born September 24, 1928, at Waterville in LeSueur County, Minnesota. Don Eustace attended Janesville and Wasika Public Schools, and he graduated from Wasika High School back in 1946. 
He served in the United States Navy from 1946 to 1948. In 1948, he married Esther, who was the daughter of Ray Daniel Clayton and Jesse Alma McGrath at Sacred Heart Church in Waseca, and they would raise nine children, Doug, Gary, Becky, Scott, Brad, Todd, Peggy, Barry, and Barbara. Don spent most of his adult life in law enforcement. He served on the Waseca Police Department one year before joining the Sheriff's Office back in 1953. In 1966, Don Eustace was elected sheriff and eventually was re-elected for two additional terms in 1970 and 1974. Don was a local sheriff. He grew up there. He knew how to talk to the people. He knew how to make friends. He really knew how to be a community sheriff. He could talk to anybody. I mean, I remember wherever we went, he knew people. He just People knew him, that they would come talk to him. He was somebody people wanted to be with. They, they wanted to know him. Um, he attracted people. He was, just, he was just amazing. Don had a pretty rough childhood growing up. I think to understand him, you have to understand where he came from. He grew up in Waseca County. His dad was, was a violent drunk, and the family disintegrated when my dad was like 10 years old. And all the kids were, were sent off to live with uh, neighbors and other family. And, and in a sense, they became kind of indentured servants on other people's farms. He then developed diphtheria and so spent a year in isolation. But I think all of that just awakened in him a need to always look out for those people who had less them. And uh, that was the great lesson that I think my, my parents, especially my dad, imparted on us. I have eight siblings, and all of us ended up in human services of some kind. And I think that's a tribute to my dad's values. He was really involved in nearly every aspect of the community. In 1963, he was selected as the Waseca JC's Outstanding Young Man of the Year. He was a member of the Knights of Columbus, the Janesville Sportsman's Club, the Minnesota Police and Peace Officers Association, the Veterans of Foreign Wars, and Fraternal Order of the Eagles. He was also a member of the Waseca Fire Department. In addition to being community-minded, Don was really all about the kids. He was instrumental in starting the Invitational Wrestling Tournament in Waseca back in 1974, which would later be named the Eustace Memorial Wrestling Tournament. Don also came up with an idea he called the Teen Canteen. One of the things everybody in Waseca remembers about Don is he was one of the community leaders, Esther and Don, that started promoting rock bands playing every month in Waseca so kids had a place to go. The Teen Canteen, the Teen Canteen. It was at the fairgrounds, and uh, he started, you know, getting little startup bands, but it was a collective place for kids to hang out instead of hanging out in the streets or getting into trouble. Renee Workey was a young kid growing up in Waseca when she met Don. She was 12 years old. As a 12-year-old, you don't pay attention to who your leaders are in law enforcement. But when I was 12, my best friend and I walked out to the roller rink in rural Waseca. And at the end of the night, we walked back to town. She was going to call for a ride home, so we went to a pay phone booth. Pay phone booth was right across the street from a bar in Waseca. And four gentlemen had been at the bar, came around the block a couple of times as she was making her calls. And I walked home because I lived maybe a block or two away. 
she got in with them purportedly to get a ride home, ended up in a, a gang rape of a 12-year-old by four adult men, which I did not know about until the next day, but that's how I met Don Eustace. Don and his chief deputy showed up at my house very early in the morning, and I was interviewed by them as far as my recollection of who the suspects were, and that opened my eyes to the world of law enforcement. Don also mentored kids, like the CETA program for lower-income kids. A few years later, Renee would end up being his choice for this program. Well, this was this was a part of what Don Eustace was all about. He was always looking to build up kids, especially underprivileged kids. And around about the time I was in ninth grade, they started a national and a statewide program. It was called CETA, C-E-T-A. The CETA program was designed to give high school kids an opportunity to work. If you could find an employer that was willing to partner with the government, the government would pay the wages for the person to work in your setting. Now, the whole point was is that you would learn some life skills, and because you were lower income, that the skills will help you in your adult life so that you wouldn't be repeating history. So when I was a junior in high school, I had been working the CEDA program, but it had been through the, the schools where I was doing cleaning, helping teachers, things like that. When I was a junior in high school, Sheriff Eustace approached the high school and said, look, we're going to be a part of this program. We know there might be some eligible students, and that turned out to be me. So when I was a junior in high school, I was hired as a secretary, which was to enhance my ability to be a secretary in life and uh, came on board at the sheriff's department. It was just a fantastic opportunity. Couldn't have asked for a better opportunity in life. Renee would be hired to help Don's wife, Esther, who also worked at the sheriff's office. I was hired to help Esther, the sheriff's wife. And what her job was, she would type up all of the deputies' reports, the initial complaint reports, the ICRs, and then she would have to figure out a filing system, which I'm sure was a statewide system, but there was no computers back in those days. So she'd have a file cabinet like you used to see at the libraries where you'd go to the index system, and you'd have a category that maybe called theft. And under theft, you'd have all the different incidents that happened. And then, of course, we'd have to mail in the ICRs to the national database, which I suppose at that point, they were just starting to collect the information. But back in 1974, they didn't have female officers. I didn't know a female officer. I'd never heard of a female officer. That was also back in the years where juveniles, youth, would be actually held in a jail setting for a status offense called incorrigibility. So what it really meant is that if mom and dad couldn't control a teenager, they'd pick up the phone, they'd call law enforcement, and somebody would come and pick up that person. Well, if there's no female on duty, somebody has to help with any females that are arrested or any juveniles that are females. And that also got to be a part of my job. Esther did that too. I mean, I didn't do it when I was in high school. It was after my college years when I continued to work there. But it was a, it was a way of filling a void because there was nobody else to call in. And not that we had that many female offenders, but there were a few. Don was always looking for ways to help kids in the area. And one of his proudest accomplishments was the organization of the Sheriff's Boys Ranch in Austin, Minnesota. He was a prime mover in this organization, whose purpose was to provide boys and young men whose lives have lacked direction with guidance and leadership skills. Don served as a president of the ranch, and a gymnasium was named in his honor. 
Don and other area sheriffs argued that they were seeing too many children go astray, and they felt that there was a need for such a home in Minnesota. Don grew up with an absent father, so he had a special place in his heart for these kids, and they cared about him, too. These boys started up their own little band, which was kind of cool. And then on one of his birthdays, they came and played in our yard for him. So that, you know, it was so cool that they came for his birthday and played for him because he, he, he did so much for them, um, you know. And so it was just like so cool that they came and had their little, put on a little concert for him for appreciation, you know. And he I mean, he got to know all the guys, the boys that were there and you know, they appreciated him. It's not that he just went there and got that place up and going. He got to know the, all the workers. He get to know the boys when they were there. He had to know people. It wasn't, you know, he, he did the work. He, he would do everything. It, he wasn't just a boss. He believed in, you know, he would do whatever it took to get things done. At the sheriff's office, he helped organize and start their first sheriff's posse. Now, Sheriff's posses were started back then to help with smaller county agency staffing. These groups compromised of local citizens volunteering their time to help law enforcement in their communities. With security for events, city festivals, helping with patrol, scene security, area searches, etc. Don also started Waseca's snowmobile posse, which essentially did the same thing, only on snowmobiles in the winter. In 1973, Don was elected president of the Minnesota Sheriff's Association. Locally, he served as the local Cub Scouts and Explorer Scout leader, president of the Waseca Rotary Club, and president of the Waseca Blue Jays Boosters Association. He loved his local sports, and with nine kids, he had plenty of his own to cheer on. Going to sports events, he loved watching his kids play and, and wrestle, and then the enthusiasm he had for the drive for his kids. I mean, you could just hear it in him. I remember hearing, listening to him at wrestling matches, and oh boy, he, he would just get so overly excited. <laughs> he, was, he was loud, and you knew he was there. <laughs> he loved his voice. He loved his voice. Um, he loved watching his, my sisters in acting, and he, you know, he just loved his children. Jeff Dickey was a young college student who worked for Don as a dispatcher. And Jeff describes the sheriff's office back at that time. When you walked in, there was a, a counter that split the room with an entrance. So in other words, people coming in to talk to the sheriff, they were behind the counter. There was no glass or anything there at the time. And the room that you saw held our communication equipment, our radios, and then had the basically the teletype type computer that was sitting in there so there was the room was uh, i don't know probably 40 by 40 two public restrooms up front um so yeah i mean you walked in and you talked to the dispatcher and the dispatcher was also the jailer okay the jail was in my opinion it was it was very modern for the time we had the huber to the front that's for people that um were working, so they would go to work and come back to jail. So that was in the front area. There was a hallway going back to the garage and a couple offices and a conference room on the way, halfway down the hallway. They also had what they called the, the drunk sale that was very small, bunk, very low off the ground so nobody could roll off and get hurt. The main cell 
had eight cells. They were there was a, a walkway so you could inspect, and then there was an inner walkway between the cells where the inmates could walk, and then they had a mechanical door operation where I could. It was run with cables and things like that, so I would turn a crank and lock all the doors. During the day, it was usually the chief deputy and one of the night deputies covering calls. Don had been instrumental in getting their first radios at the sheriff's office, but interesting fact, before that, they used blue lights. When I started there, they had, a, they called it the blue light system, where before they had radios, and it was relatively... It wasn't too distant from when I started. They would press a button in the office and that would light up blue lights all over town and they knew they had to come to the office for a message. Things were different back in the 70s. Being a sheriff was really a huge commitment, not just for the sheriff, but often for his wife as well. Don's wife, Esther, also worked at the sheriff's office and she was the secretary, she was the cook, and she was even deputized. My mom was his secretary. She was also a deputy. They needed a female to do a lot of pat-downs on women. They needed, you know, searches, searches, and she was that. And then she also did all the cooking. She did all the cooking on seven days a week. But if she, you know, when we were at sheriff's conventions, then um, my, my sisters would have to do it. They were fed very, very well. We show them respect, and they're going to be good, right? They, they treated them very well. Not only was the entire family involved when your dad was the sheriff back then, but the family car was also the squad car. And in, back in the 70s, you know, the sheriff, they had to use their own personal vehicles for their squad cars. He would bring his vehicle for everybody to check out because we had your own, you know, he had your bulb up here's lights. He had it keep under the, when we'd go places, he'd take it off the top of his vehicle and put it under a seat, of course. Yeah, I don't know. So then when we was working, he'd put it back on top. Don was also the kind of sheriff that didn't give his kids any breaks. One time I went to a cager that got busted, but I uh, managed to sneak away without getting caught. The next day I get a call from my dad and says, come on down to the office. So I go down there and he says, uh, where were you last night? And I said, oh, you know, I was doing this, just doing that. And he said, well, I busted a lot of your buddies out at this party. Were you out there? And I said, well, I guess. <laughs> so so he, 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 you know, he arrests me, gives me a ticket. I go out, my mom books me, and then I had to call my brother up to come and pay my fine. <laughs> so he was very concerned that people saw him as a fair man. So he didn't give his kids any breaks. And I, and I appreciated that. You know, you didn't want to embarrass the man because, you know, his, his job was very important and he did it very well. Odd as it sounds, the jail was Barb's favorite place to hang oh, out. Oh, that was my favorite place to hang. <laughs> I had my only own little table and chair there so I could hang out at the sheriff's office. <laughs> I remember even um, back then I would walk home from kindergarten. I was supposed to go to daycare and... Yeah, well, I would go to daycare and knock as lightly as I could on the door so she couldn't hear me. <laughs> and then I would leave there and I'd walk up to the sheriff's office and tell my parents she wasn't home so I could hang with my parents. <laughs> yeah, I know. So then they would call and say, don't worry, she's up here. <laughs> I always thought I was scamming everybody. I guess they knew what I was doing. <laughs> it was my favorite hangout. I loved being with my mom and dad. And so they eventually just gave me my own little, my own little table and chair. <laughs> it 
It was Saturday, September 4th, 1976. It was Labor Day weekend, the end of the summer, which meant back to school, meant football games, cooler weather, changing of the leaves. It's really one of the best seasons of the year in Minnesota. It was an absolute beautiful morning. Um, I was in the office all alone dispatching on day shift at that time. And Don came in through the back garage. And so I saw him, you know, I saw him approach the dispatch. He just said that the family was going on an outing and he was just stopping up to check, see how things were going. And he was casually dressed, which I didn't see very often at all. I mean, usually he was in uniform. And then he just said that Esther was at home getting the kids all ready and they were going to pack up and leave here shortly. And then Mert came in. Chief Deputy Mert Schwartz had been trying all week to make contact with 64-year-old Kenneth Jewison, who was a man who farmed about eight miles north of Wasika. Jewison had a history of mental illness, and it was reported that he'd been acting strangely. However, the Jewison family wasn't comfortable signing a mental illness commitment petition. Don had stopped into the office that morning to check and see what was going on during the day. After talking to Mert about his struggles trying to make contact with Jewison earlier that week, Don felt that he could help Mert deal with both Jewison and his wife. He thought he could help convince Jewison that he needed to see a doctor. He'd done it before. They were distant relatives. Don had known Jewison since he was a kid. He even worked for him on the farm when he was young. Don and Mert then drove to the county attorney's office. Bill Patton was his name. That was about 8.30 that morning, and they asked Bill to type up and approve a commitment order. Bill noticed Mert was in uniform, and he also noticed Don was wearing a bright, flowered Hawaiian shirt. And Bill gave Don a little grief about being out of uniform, in fun, of course. Don told Bill that he was taking Esther and the kids to the Renaissance Festival up in the Twin Cities. It's in a suburb of Shakopee. It's an annual festival that takes attendees back to the King Henry and his royal court setting, recreating a 16th century European village full of artisans, era actors, armored jousting events, and more. The state fair was also on that weekend as well. The two left Bill Patton's office with a signed commitment order and then headed to the Jewison farm. Normally, even with commitment papers like these, one deputy would go out and attempt to serve them back then. Today, law enforcement would never do this with just one officer. The reality was back then, though, they just didn't have the staff to pair up for paper services like this. Don was in plain clothes, and he was unarmed, as usual, and Schwartz was in uniform, and he was armed. As they approached the farmhouse, they saw Jewison standing behind the screen door. Both Don and Mert acknowledged him as they were walking up. They said, hi, Kenny. Jewison then came outside. He leveled up a 12-gauge double-barreled shotgun, aimed it at them, and fired from 12 feet away, hitting Don in the right side of his chest. Don went down, and he never moved. Mert jumped backwards. He was shocked. He drew his revolver. He had no cover, so he continued to move back in order to make himself a harder target. He ordered Jewison to put down the gun. Jewison turned around and he went back into the house. Mertz continued to order Jewison to come on out. Put down the gun. Kenny, put down the gun. Finally, Jewison stepped out. He threw out the gun and he said, I give up. Mertz then handcuffed Jewison and he put him in the backseat of the squad and he radioed for help. The next thing I know, Mertz called. He said, um, 
Jeff, Don's been shot. Could you please contact the county attorney and the coroner? And I'll be coming in with a with a prisoner. And that was it. It was just clipped like that. And uh, I was absolutely stunned. Sheriff Don Eustace died instantly from the shotgun blast to the chest. Jewison's wife, Evelyn, was also there, and she witnessed the shooting. She was taken into custody, but released a short time later. Keep in mind, there were no cell phones back then, so Mertz called this all in over the radio, where anyone with a scanner could hear it. And then all heck just broke loose in the office. I mean, the phone just went went wild. Um, I had calls. I had one call from a sheriff in California that had heard and Duluth and most of the time I just answered the phone and said no comment and hung up and just went to the next call. We often forget about our 911 dispatchers, our public safety telecommunicators, and the stress they take on in this line of work. They have an incredibly difficult and stressful job because they're often tasked with doing several things at once, oftentimes dealing with several calls at once. They are the deputy's safety line, their line of communication. And Jeff had just been told his boss, his friend, his mentor, had just been shot and killed. And with it being told over the radio, everyone else heard it as well. And Jeff's phones started ringing off the hook. As a dispatcher, while he's trying to process what he was just told, he still has to keep his composure and he's got to do his job. He'd have to process it all later. Right now, he had a job to do. One of the calls he made right away was to Bill Patton. Jeff told Bill, Mert just radioed in. He wants you and the county coroner, Dr. Norman, to go out to the Jewison farm at once. Bill told Jeff to call Dr. Norman and that Bill would be on his way. Bill grabbed his camera, a notepad, and a pen and drove the few miles to Jewison's farm, all the way praying, please God, let it be Jewison. Please God, let it be Jewison. Jeff hadn't told Bill who was dead or why, and Bill didn't dare ask. When Bill arrived at the Jewison farm, he immediately saw Don lying on his back, arms spread, and feet pointing towards the front door. Don was about eight feet from the old rickety steps to the farmhouse. A large hole in his bright-colored Hawaiian shirt at midpoint of his chest. The shotgun blast had blown him back onto the ground in front of the porch. Bill knelt down by his side, tears streaming down his face, hoping for a miracle and a pulse. There was none. He's gone, Bill, Mert said while standing just outside his squad car with Jewison in the back seat. Bill took pictures of the scene. He made some notes and then helped put Don's body in the ambulance. Bill recalled there wasn't a dry eye on all the men there. Each of them throughout the years had seen all sorts of death, all sorts of mutilation, but this one was different. Don felt he could make friends with anyone. He could quiet a drunk, he could quell a fighter, and soothe a distraught individual, almost always making friends with them. His ability to make friends with everyone had always worked, except this morning. Barb and her family were at home that morning. They were doing chores. They were excited for a trip to the Renaissance Festival and the state fair that day when Dad got home. Saturday morning, Labor Day weekend. It was only um, my brother Barry and I and Mom that were up. 
mean, I think Todd was home. He was, you know, he was home from college. At this point, there's not many kids left in, at the house any longer. Most of everybody else was raised. And so dad had left early and when it, you know, he was working and he was going to come back. We were supposed to get up early and start our tours because um, we were going to go to the Renaissance Festival. And this was going to be the first time ever that we were going to do this. So Barry and I were outside doing some cleanup of, you know, of stuff so that we put it away for fall. And um, mom was in the house doing some, uh, you know, chores or whatever. And Doc Norman, our family doctor, comes up into the driveway. And we were living in uh, in town, but we had a super long driveway. It was, it was unusual to see Doc Norman coming up our driveway. And he had Ruth Seawald with him, who her husband drives the ambulance. And, it, you know, you don't think anything of these people coming up. So they pulled up and um, they got out of the car and went into the house. And when they walked in, I happened to go into a different door to get something and I didn't hear anything being said. But I, I heard my mom go to the stairs to the basement in this awful, awful scream that I will never forget. And I wonder walking outside and I turned to Barry and I said, Something's wrong. Anything we need to stay outside. Because mom's, mom's upset. So we continued. We, I remember we were washing air mattresses, you know, to put them away. And then Doc Norman called us in the house. And we had a big picture window that looked out into our yard. He just put his arm around us and looked. We didn't want us to look at mom. He had us turn our back to her. And had us look outside, and he just told us that our, you know, that our dad was gone and that he had died. The challenge now was to get all their family members and relatives notified. One of my brothers, before he even made it home, he was called home. He was up at, he was up at St. John's football practice before school. His school started. He was on. A, he, he got told he needed to go home. And he, he didn't know why, but he heard it on the radio before he got home. Gary was 26 years old at the time, and he was living at a farmhouse outside of town. I was living on a farmstead that was just across from the field from where my dad was killed. The, the night before, he called me up, and uh, one of my younger brothers was supposed to go and, and do a, a little work for him, and he wasn't available, so he called me and said, would you uh, you know, come and, and do this for me? And I said, sure. So he wanted me to go sit at a lumberyard that had been having some issues and kind of stake it out for the night. And it was really unusual. As, as I was leaving, he handed me a, a gun. It was probably the second time in my life he's ever given me a gun. He never wore a gun. He uh, said that it gave people the wrong impression. He never did. He'd, he'd keep a pistol in his glove, you know, locked up. And he just said, you'll never know when you're going to need it. So I went out and I was, I sat for the evening and, and nothing happened. So about five o'clock, I decided I was going to head home. So I stopped by my dad's house to lay down on the couch for a second or two. And he was getting up and he was going to take the kids to the state fair. It was a Saturday, Labor Day weekend, Saturday. And uh, so I thought, well, I'll just move on here because, you know, pretty soon the kids are going to be up and I was tired. And so I went out to the farm and was laying down and, you know, August hot and sweaty and couldn't fall asleep and so I went outside and I had this handgun I thought well you know never get one of these much so I thought I'd squeeze off a few rounds so I was out there shooting so 
So then, yeah, so then I go back and lay down again. And uh, I hear this boom. And I thought, ah, some farmer's just letting me know that I irritated him. So I, I lay back down, and I don't know how long it was, but then the phone starts ringing. And it just rings and rings and rings. And I thought it was my buddies wanting me to come and play softball or something, and I just tried to ignore it. Finally, it got just to be too much, so I answered it. And it was a neighbor of my parents and said, uh, there's an emergency, you better come home. So I jumped in my car and headed home. And uh, my first thought was my dad's had a heart attack or my grandma's ill. And uh, so I get home and, and a family doctor who was a, who was a very good friend of the family was standing at the back door and with uh, one of my little sisters. And when I got out of the car, my sister just fell apart and said, dad's dead. And uh, I just turned around and kicked the car. And uh, I just couldn't believe it. So, so I went and talked to my mom and she was just, you know, she was just white and then was, was so shocked that she you know, couldn't really respond. So I took it upon myself to go around and try to tell other relatives in town what was going on. The shot that Gary heard was Jewison shooting and killing his father. When something happens to one of our officers, one of our deputies, one of our troopers, one of the biggest concerns we have is notifying immediate family before someone else does, before someone shares something on social media, before the rumor mill starts, before the news gets a hold of it. Back in 1976, we didn't have all of today's communications technology. There was no internet, there was no cell phones, just police scanners. Tom West was the editor of the Wasika Daily Journal back then, and he was usually always listening to his scanner to keep up on any newsworthy events in the county. That morning, he didn't have a police scanner at home, so he slept with his window open a crack to listen for sirens. If he heard one siren, he would assume it was a medical and he would just ignore it. If he heard two or more sirens, then he would check it out in case it was newsworthy, if it was maybe a fire or a major accident in town. That morning, he heard only one siren, so he ignored it. A couple hours later, Tom was about to go to the office to catch up on some paperwork. As he walked out the door, he ran into his mailman, Max Hopkins, and Max told Tom that he had just heard a rumor a few minutes before that the sheriff had been shot. Tom was stunned and then panicked because he didn't know how he would verify it since all news from the sheriff's office had to come from the sheriff himself. Tom then called the local ambulance driver, Mark Nesty, and asked him if the information were true. He said the sheriff had been shot. Tom asked Mark if Don was alive or dead. Mark hesitated and then finally said, Tom, he had a hole in him the size of a softball. Tom was stunned like everyone else who started hearing the news, and he responded to the sheriff's office where he was told they were at the county attorney's office. At that time, the county attorney was a part-time position. Bill was the part-time county attorney, and he worked out of his private office downtown. Tom walked into the office and was told by a deputy that was there that Patton had Mert Schwartz in his office and he was interviewing him. The deputy told Tom to have a seat. So Tom sat down in the waiting room next to another couple. 
About 45 minutes into his waiting, the man who he was sitting next to, who appeared to be sleeping, suddenly stirred and then stood up. The deputy immediately yelled at him and said, You sit down. You sit down. The man replied to the deputy, You put murderers in jail, don't you? Well, let's go. It was at that moment that Tom realized he'd been sitting next to Don's killer, Kenneth Jewison, and his wife, who both had been transported to Patton's office where they were waiting to be interviewed. Later, Don's son Gary and two of his brothers, who were still in shock from the killing of their father, they decided to go to the jail to see Jewison. Now, today, this would never happen, but remember, this was back in 1976. Things were different back then. It was later in the day I realized I had heard the shot that killed him. I just, thought, you know, earlier thought it was some farmer shooting hawks or something. So uh, when my brothers were home, two of them and I decided we're going to go up to the sheriff's office and see Kenny. And I, I can't tell you what the exact purpose was, but we were mad. You know, we were angry. And because we were always around, you know, they just let us in. And all the you know, door cell doors are all electronic, so they had to push the button to let us in, you know, and it was no issue at all. So we went, went back to see Kenny, and uh, he was just, he's a very small man, you know, he's older. He was naked and, and in the corner just crying and screaming and, and carrying on, and we realized that. You know, Kenny was not uh, in any way responsible for what happened. He was just completely out of his mind at that time. And to my mom's credit, um, she recognized that. And so when uh, the county attorney came to ask what we thought should happen, um, my mom uh, thought it would be best if Kenny was just uh, allowed to go to the nursing home because he had some other major health issues. Even though Jewison was indicted on first-degree murder by a grand jury just four days after the murder, on October 15th, after an evaluation, he was certified as mentally unfit to stand trial. The order, signed by Waseca County District Judge Urban J. Steinman, said the defendant appears to be mentally ill at this time with a diagnosis of schizophrenia. He was ordered to be committed to St. Peter State Security Hospital, and his psychiatric evaluation was to be sealed forever. As soon as Don was murdered, the county board's responsibility was to appoint a new sheriff to replace him, and they asked his wife. Right after he did die, the county commissioners had asked her if she would be sheriff. They felt that if anybody knew everything, it would be her because she was his right-hand man. She knew the ins and outs of that, that sheriff's office. Um, but she said, no, she couldn't do it. Now, as unique as this sounds today, years before, in 1956, in neighboring Steele County, Sheriff Donald M. Christensen died of a heart attack in his third term as sheriff there. And the board appointed his wife, Mary, to fill her husband's term making her the third female spouse to be appointed sheriff in Minnesota. The first was Sadie Monroe, who was appointed as Lyon County Sheriff back in 1922, and Anna Lowe, who was appointed a year earlier in Murray County in 1923. In both cases, their husbands were the sheriff, and they had died of heart attacks during their term. Decades later, in 2002, Sheriff Therese Amazai would become the first elected female sheriff in Moore County, Minnesota. 
On Wednesday, September 7th, Merton Schwartz was appointed as sheriff by the county board to replace Don. The editorial in the Wasika paper on September 7th, 1976 read as follows. Don Eustace was loved and respected by almost everyone he knew. Even many of those whom he'd had to bring to justice knew him as a fair man. Don was a leader of overwhelming dynamic force. In his numerous civic activities, he was not only a member of the organization, but more often than not, was the primary driving force who either got the organization off the ground or breathed new life into it. In particular, he was a master at dealing with young people. Many upstanding members of the community today have Don to thank for keeping them or returning them to the straight and narrow path. He felt every youngster, no matter what his circumstances, deserved an even break to make it in this world. Now he is gone, the victim of an apparently senseless act. One strives to find some possible meaning in this tragic event. Don spent his life protecting us, not only from each other, but from ourselves. He was a living example for every one of us to follow. In serving us, he made the ultimate sacrifice. He gave his life. The bell tolls for all of us, asking that this man who serves us shall not have died in vain. He was involved in mankind, and his death should serve as a cue to all of us to live life as he did to the fullest. Don and Esther, together as a couple, did anything and everything for every young person, no matter what the circumstances. They did everything to give kids a break. That's what they were like. They were overwhelming leaders in terms of trying to get kids motivated and get kids on the right track. My mom was amazing. Right from the very beginning, she told us that we shouldn't be mad at Kenny, that he didn't know what he was doing. Dad went out that morning and he went out just because Kenny knew him and he wanted to make it easier for him. And I think that really helped um, especially maybe my brothers, she really tried to to help us accept that it was was over. You know, there wasn't anything we could do, or you know, and that Kenny didn't really need it. And Dad knew that Kenny was was ill. You know, he'd been out there before. Jewison would spend the next five years in the hospital in St. Peter until the Commissioner of Public Welfare ordered Jewison's release from St. Peter on December 30th, 1981, conditioned on his residence in a nursing home approved by the County Welfare Department. Jewison was moved to the Fairbolt Manor Nursing Home in Fairbolt, Minnesota, an approved facility. Jewison remained there until his death on June 8th, 1984. He continued to be committed under the order of October 19, 1976, until his death and was never discharged by the Waseca County Probate Court. Don was buried in a small country cemetery, a small country churchyard three miles north of the farm where he died. About 1,500 mourners attended the funeral services, including over 400 law enforcement officers from around the state and region. Also in attendance was Minnesota Attorney General Warren Spanis, the state's chief law enforcement officer at the time. The Attorney General was quoted as saying, it's a very sad, sad day for Waseca County and the state of Minnesota. The church was packed and outside the, the streets were full of people. And it was just common people, you know, my dad's friends, neighbors, relatives, um, it was just an overwhelming turnout, and uh, I guess the thing that 
brought me a lot of comfort and strength was my dad was buried in a a country cemetery 10 miles from town and the cemetery sits up on a little knoll so you can see back toward town for miles and miles and uh, it was kind of a bleak day lots of rain but you could see all these headlights and following all these red lights that, that are churning and there was just such a huge parade of these cars you just uh, it just made me very proud to be my dad's kid. Despite my history and how I got to know them, when I worked there as secretary matron, I learned a lot. I felt included. I never felt at all that I wasn't a part of the law enforcement family. And one day I remember Don calling me into his office. And believe me, I was scared to death of him. He has this booming, booming voice. Worky, get in here. And I, I went into his office and, you know, you kind of say, what, what do you want? What do you want? And his question to me was, well, where are you going to college? And I said, well, what do you mean where? I didn't have a notion, not even a thought in my head. And when he said that, it wasn't because he posed it, where are you going instead of are you going? It really made me think differently about where I was at in life. And I kind of shrugged and went him hard and said, I'm not really sure. And he pointed out to me that Mankato State was only 25 miles away. And he said, you know, you'd be stupid not to go there. Well, if Don said you were going to do something, you were going to do it. It was late in the application process, but I did get my app in, did get accepted, and, uh, you know, the rest is history. It's just uh, the encouragement that he gave to everyone. There was no such thing as, I can't. He didn't have that in his vocabulary. If you came to him and said, I can't do this, I can't do that, the challenges would just keep tumbling out of his mouth. Same with Esther. There was always a sadder story that they would share with you or somebody that was worse off than you, which would make you feel like, oh, I don't have it so bad. I can do this. I can figure it out. And it was it was empowering. It really was. Law enforcement funerals bring out so many emotions, especially for those at the Fallen Officers Agency. I was crushed by both the sorrow and the beauty of it. It instilled such pride in me. I was so proud to be in the in the position I was in. The whole church was filled. It's a fairly large church, and you couldn't park within three blocks of the church because of all the squad cars. It was a very impressive display. 23-year-old Curtis Felt was a young deputy from the Douglas County Sheriff's Office who traveled three and a half hours to attend Don's funeral. And he had commented to his parents that he was overwhelmed by the outstanding support that police officers show to honor the life and death of a fellow officer. Curtis was shot and killed in the line of duty less than two years later. For Esther and the kids, they needed to figure out how to move forward. Becky and her husband lived in Duluth at the time, but after Don was killed, she would come back on the weekends to make sure mom was okay. After that, for the first year, I went home every weekend just to help her and the kids get through because she had my sister Peggy would have been a senior at the time. And it was hard for her. Uh, one of the Jewish boys one time went into the store and they just kind of gave her a hard time. And I'm sure they were embarrassed. They didn't know what to say, you know, or what to do, you know. So they kind of 
were kind of rude and mean to her. And I think it was just because they didn't know what else to do, you know, but it hurt her. Um, but anyway, so I went home and, and helped mom get through all the stuff that she had to get through. And But my mom became stronger with it. And she started a grief group for women, which was really good for her and for them. But it left a big hole in the family because we were all in our 20s or younger. And it's an it's a important time to have parents around where you're still trying to figure things out. Law enforcement isn't a career, it's a calling. And regardless if you live in the big metropolitan area of Minneapolis-St. Paul, or you live in small rural communities like Wasika, this calling comes with great risk. The men and women who put on the badge and serve our communities day and night risk everything to keep our communities, our homes, and our families safe. Risks that they are willing to take in most cases for people, honestly, they don't even know. Risks they feel are worth it that they feel are important because they believe in a bigger purpose. Risks they believe are worth taking on because most of these men and women simply want to do their small part to help make their community a little better place, a little safer place for their kids, for their families, for their neighbors. Service before self. These risks require a commitment level that goes far beyond these men and women serving. Now, when they take on this calling, it's not only them committed to service, it's their families, too. Like Don's amazing wife, Esther, and Barb, and her eight siblings. All these years later, Don's service and sacrifices still remembered in this community. Since Don's death, the Eustace Community Service Award is presented to an individual who has served the community. This is presented by the Chamber of Commerce to an individual who has been active in a number and variety of areas and has served as a leader and assumed responsibility for that service. Renee Warkey, the young teenager that Don and Esther took in as their secretary matron, helping her and mentoring her throughout high school. Remember Don suggesting, or or better telling her that she needed to go to college, something she hadn't thought about because of the poor family situation she grew up in? Well, Renee did just that. She attended college in Mankato, as Don had suggested, and then she decided to go on to law school. I took my law school admittance test and was accepted at the only, this is kind of funny too, is the only law, I was the only uh, law school that I was aware of and I was only aware of it because, again, Don would always call me into his office when he had a lawyer that was visiting and he'd have defense lawyers and he'd have the county attorney and he'd always say, get in here. And again, when he'd say, get in here, you just came in there, you sat and you tried to listen to what he was telling you to do, which was normally to write a letter or do something secretarial. but. One of the lawyers that was a regular there had went to a, a law school in St. Paul, and that was the only one I applied to. So I did get accepted. I went to law school, got out of law school, and worked for a judge. After that, I worked in private practice in the city of Owatonna. I did that for hmm, 11 years, and, and uh, then the judge in Wasita uh, had a heart attack and died, and I was the natural person to be appointed. So I went back to where I started, and tried to emulate what Don and Eustace had, had set a prime example of, which is trying to develop programs and processes and have those meetings with the sheriff once a month so you can catch up on things. And uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a great, great uh, arrangement. And then I was chief judge. I would, would have been the first chief judge in the third before uh, 
the Dodge County judge came on board. But it was it was a good relationship. But then there was a, a vacancy at the Court of Appeals, and I was appointed here. So I've been here, geez, going on 18 years now. The Honorable Judge Renee L. Worky was appointed to the Minnesota Court of Appeals in 2005. Recipient of the Distinguished Alumni Achievement Award from the Minnesota State University, the Ann Bancroft Foundation Women Leader Award, the Women of Achievement Award from the Owatonna Business and Professional Organization, and recipient of the Rosalie E. Wall Judicial Award of Excellence from the Minnesota State Bar Association. All of this from that little girl in Wasika who was born into a rough family life, who Don met after an unspeakable crime. A young girl Don believed in and wanted to give an opportunity to as a teenager. A girl they watched grow into a confident young woman. A young woman they pushed to believe she could do anything or be anything she wanted to be. Her success is a great example of the positive leadership and influence this man really had on this community, especially on the youth of this community. When Don died, Esther and the family started a scholarship for young people. The Donald D. Eustace Memorial Scholarship Fund was given to a deserving student in Winona County who has been accepted to a college of their choice to pursue a career in law enforcement. This fund is still going strong today to help encourage young people who want to make a difference in their communities, like Sheriff Don Eustace and his wife Esther. Decades later, Sheriff Don Eustace is still making a difference in this little county of Wasika. His legacy continues to ensure, in this south-central Minnesota community and beyond, that his service and his sacrifice will never be forgotten. Thank you for spending the time to listen, learn about, and honor the memory of this fallen hero. Make sure you take the time to thank your local law enforcement for their service and their sacrifice. And don't forget to thank their families too. They also sacrifice so much for our safety. It's up to us to help ensure the sacrifices made by these fallen heroes and by their families are never forgotten. So please share this podcast with family and friends. Until next time, this is the Officer Down Memorial Podcast. I'm Scott Rose. Thanks for listening.